All right. So as you can see, we are talking about sociology tonight. Um, I'd like to say that it's near and dear to my heart. You know, this is, you know, this is my undergraduate degree is in this, and, um, but that was so long ago, I don't even know that that really counts anymore. But anyway, so it's sociology and the worldview, so this is where we're at, and this is where we're going to start tonight. Let me get my glasses out. And so it's the study of human societies and institutions. That's what soci uh, sociology is. It's the study of human societies and institutions. Right? It looks how individuals and society interact and how they respond to things. And so when we study sociology and we study these individuals and societies, we see patterns of ideas, beliefs, convictions, and habits that direct every aspect of the world we live in. And so if you've been in this class very long, what does that sound like? That's a worldview. That's a worldview. And so when we talk about sociology, it is literally looking at people's worldviews and they're determining how they're going to act and respond in these manners. And again, that's why, one, that's why we study worldviews, because once we understand what the core ideas and values are to people, what their worldview is, we can sit there and say, oh, well, they're probably going to respond in this way on this topic. Or they're going to take this position on this stance because of their worldview. So hopefully, like as a biblical worldview, we should know how each of us, what position we're going to take on certain topics, right? Whether it's on scripture, whether it's on life, whether it's on morality, Right? If we're operating out of a biblical worldview, we should be consistent in each of those ideas and those positions and those stances. And again, that's why we learn. And so once I recognize, oh, wow, you're a postmodern worldview, well, then I can begin to direct the conversations where I want it to go off of your worldview. I may not always get it right, but at least it gives me this path to work through and to start asking questions concerning whatever those ideas are for that person. And that's one reason why it becomes important to understand people's worldviews. Every worldview has a weakness, right? And once we learn it well and we learn to ask questions well, then we can begin to ask questions that will quickly get to the weakness of that worldview. In other words, they don't have an answer for it. And once you, somebody realizes, wow, you know what, Leland, I don't have an answer for that, hopefully I'll go back and relook and say, well, is there an answer? Right? And then we could do a little self-reflection. Now, that doesn't happen a lot in our society today, but it's still possible. Okay? It's still possible. All right. So, in studying the social structure, this is James Dobson, and this is what he talked about when we're dealing with, these, with this idea of sociology and values and everything. Man, he equates it with a civil war of values. Right? And this is what he said. Nothing short of a great civil war of values rages today throughout North America. Two sides with vastly differing and incompatible worldviews are locked in a bitter conflict that permeates every level of society. Look, these, man, when we look at the biblical worldview and any other worldview, you cannot bring them together without diminishing the biblical worldview. It can't be done. It is impossible to sit there and say, well, can't we, can't we meet in the middle? Can't we have a synthesis, right? We can go back to the Marxist idea of dialectical materialism, and we could have this conflict, and we can come to an agreement, and then we'll just come up with a synthesis or this new idea. Well, if you come up with a new idea in, in the biblical worldview, guess what? You no longer have a biblical worldview. You've given that up. Okay, you've given that up, and that is the battle that's going on today. Man, Dobson said this probably almost 20 years ago. It's only gotten worse. It's only gotten worse. And you know what? I'll just let me encourage you. It's only going to get worse. Right? And you say, wow, I'm so glad I went to Rick's class today. I just, man, it's awesome. Right? So just some of these values, oh, that's kind of small, sorry about that, uh, that we're talking about, right? Students identifying as liberal or progressive is at a 35-year high. And again, when we talk about students and they're going to a public university, that shouldn't be a surprise. That shouldn't be a surprise, 
right? 70% of Americans support same-sex marriage. 70%. Right? Millennials have the lowest level of church attendance of any generation in American history. You know, so I was, I was kind of researching that a little bit and trying to get some, you know, some, some, some better numbers on that. And we actually saw an uptick in like 2020 in millennials' attendance. And so what happened in 2020? Yeah. And where did church go? It went online, right? And so, and so they're counting online as going to church. And so they saw this uptick and they thought, wow, this is promising. It was short-lived. And so now it's going back down. Now it's going back down. One-third of the young people live in a home where the biological father is not present. That's 18.4 million people. 18.4 million people. And only one in 20 families engage in any spiritual training outside of the church. One in 20. And, you know, and when we look at that whole same-sex thing, most of the opposition, hopefully this shouldn't be a surprise, most of the opposition to same-sex marriage comes from those within the church. No surprise there. Hopefully it's not a surprise. 58% of the people that are regular church attenders oppose same-sex marriage. Now, that's a little discouraging, right? But that is the main opposition that we find to same-sex marriage. And the reality of it is, is that's where you're going to find the, find the main opposition when it comes to the LGBTQ movement, as it comes to transgenderism, as it comes to transspeciation, as it comes to transhumanism, whatever it is, you know, that opposition is going to come to, from the church, as it, as it should, as it should. Yes, yeah, the church is standing against those ideas. So secularism, right? Steve Bruce, this historian says, reality is socially constructed. Our behavior has hidden social causes and much of social life is profoundly ironic or coincidental. All right, so what does all that mean? Right, reality is socially constructed. It means that no institution such as the family are ordained by God. Right? And postmodernism would agree with this idea here. This would be an idea where they would cross over and say, yeah, we, you know, all things are socially constructed. Our behavior has hidden social causes. That means that society causes us to do what we do. Right? There's no personal responsibility. Right? And so when we, when we see people stealing, well, it's because they're poor. Right? When we see, and again, you can make it, but there's always an excuse. It never goes back to the individual. You know, I was sitting there getting ready for this today, and it made me think, and now I'm going to say a name, and, and half of you are not even going to know it, right? But, right, Flip Wilson, anybody remember Flip Wilson? He was a comedian. <laughs> Come on, Kevin. Come on, work with me, man. Right? <laughs> Right, I know, I just aged myself, right? Flip Wilson, he was a comedian, he was a funny guy, right? And he would always sit there and say, what would he say? The devil made me do it, right? And that's what he, you know, and I used to chuckle and laugh. Of course, I was lost, and it was a good excuse as any, I thought, right? Today, it's not the devil made me do it. It's the institutions made me do it, right? We just get a different phrase to pass the buck on to somebody else. Uh, hang on a second. I'm sorry. So whether the devil made you do it or the institution made you do it, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And that's where we get into this idea of our behaviors is, has hidden social causes. And then social life is profoundly ironic. It means there's no purpose or design in the world. There's no purpose or design in the world. It's just stuff happens, and we just need to live with it. Words have meaning. It's imperative that we understand what people mean by their words. It's important that we mean uh, I was just reading some stuff. I was talking about this with, with Amanda this year, yesterday, and um, I'm reading some Francis Schaeffer stuff and um, the God who was there, and he talks about this idea, this line of despair, right? And 
And it's a top and a bottom or north and south, however you want to do it. And above the line of despair is, is we may not agree on all things, but the language we understand, that we use is we understand the terms and the meanings and the phrases that we use. Right? And so we can communicate. Even if we're in disagreement, we can communicate. Well, then once you move south of that line of despair, what happens is, is the language turns and the meanings change. And we may be talking and using the same words. We're just not using the same definitions. And so we've moved below the line of despair. And Francis Schaeffer talked about this line of despair really happening. It was probably 1935 or really as early as 1908. But when we talk about the line of despair and we're moving, and again, none of this is on your paper. Um, it's everything north of the line of despair means that there's an objective reality or an objective truth. Everything below the line of despair means everything becomes subjective. Right? And if everything is subjective, we can't communicate no longer. And it could be whatever, your truth can be your truth and my truth can be my truth and we can all be happy with that. Right? And so literally what's happening is, is and I think, and I'm doing some more work on this, is this idea of the language, that's the spirit of this age. That's the spirit of this age is, is man, language controls it all. And whoever controls the language controls the culture. Yeah. Well, first you have to ask those questions. You can't assume that just because we're using the same word, we're talking about the same definition. So anymore, it's almost, well, what do you mean by that? Well, and again, the, the, the issue at that point in time says, is you ask, what's the meaning to that word? And they give you the meaning to the word. And so then it's, how did you come to that meaning? Where did you get that definition from? And so again, we, you, you just keep asking questions. Well, how do you know that that's the right meaning? How do you know that's the correct meaning? I mean, we can go into etymology and talk about how words are structured and they're built. And when you're dealing with the Greek and the Latin and all that type of stuff, but they're not, they're not dealing with that. It's just, you know what, because that's what I think it is, or that's what these people agree. And I said, but you've got other people that agree that it's not. Then what happens? How do you come to a consensus on that? And really what you're doing is you're painting a picture that unless we agree on our terms, we really can't have a conversation. And if we can't have a conversation, we cannot make any progress. And this is going to come up here in this, in this lesson, and that is ultimately the government will determine that. You know, we'll either be governed by love or what was it she said last week, by a stick, right? The government doesn't govern us by love, it governs by power. I mean, and that's the nature of government. That's the nature of government. So again, we always have to ask those questions, what do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? And make them, because what happens is, is we get in the conversations and we don't, we don't define our terms. They don't define their terms. And, man, we leave frustrated 30 minutes later. We have to define our terms. We have to define our languages. We have to be clear in our communication. Even if that means we, we communicate a whole lot less, at least we bring clarity into the conversation. Did that help? I probably talked longer than you needed me to, but. Well, and, and again, it's, it's where, where do you go get it, and then how do you know that's true? I mean, that's ultimately what you're going to get to, is how do you know that that's true? Because you say that it is, other people say that it's not. Well, yeah, it's, yeah, it doesn't, yeah. Okay, you're welcome. Okay, the foundation of secular sociology is personal autonomy. 
It's personal autonomy. Uh, Francis Schaeffer calls this autonomous freedom. Carl Truman, he calls it expressive individualism. But it's still the same. And again, this is nothing new, right? This was in the garden. This is an idea that, that was birthed in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, and it's, it's alive and well today. Not just in our cultures and societies, but let's be honest, in our own lives. This is an idea that, that creeps into our own lives and our own thinking. Right? Personal autonomy is the belief that individuals should have the freedom to decide what is right for themselves and to live in whatever manner brings them the most happiness. Right? Last week I briefly talked, um, actually it was Natasha Crane that gave us, I got these from, but she said feelings are the ultimate guide. Happiness is the ultimate goal. And this is what we get in this personal autonomy. It's about my happiness. And again, it sounds good until we reach this point where your happiness is eroding upon my happiness. And then whose happiness wins? The one with the most power. The one with the most power. The problem is society works against our personal desires. And now, this is, now, this is what they would say in secularism, and this is certainly what postmodernists would say the same thing. It's society keeps me from achieving my utmost happiness. And when they say society, they're institutions. We're talking institutions keep me from fulfilling my personal desires because they're trying to conform me into whatever image that they think is beneficial for them and they're encroaching upon my happiness. Secular sociologists believe societal restraints must be removed, and the best way to do this is through political intervention. Which, again, I just find, I just find this intriguing, because politics is government, which is an institution, which is hindering my happiness, but I'm going to use the government to force my happiness on everybody else. So they're not that against the government. But the reality is, is that's the only tool they have to force you to affirm their happiness or whatever it is that makes them happy. So they rely upon the institution. The very thing that they say causes the problem in the first place. And again, you end up with this contradiction of terms, this contradiction of ideas, right? And then you, we get back to the definitions. Once, once you show that a person's definition is, violates the law of non-contradiction, that tells you it's not true. That tells you it's not true. If it's not true for all people, all places, and all times, it's not an objective truth, and why should that have any bearing on my life, Right? And that's literally an argument that you would find in the secular realm also. So social restraints equals institutions. Um, secular sociologists believe governmental solutions are the best solutions to human problems. And I've given this some thought. You know, the only thing that ever came up with that actually works well on the federal level was the military. And I'm changing on that now, too. I'm changing on that now, too. I mean, just anything that's done on this massive federal scale or national scale, it's not going to work well in most cases. But again, the government is all that we have to enforce my rights to get my happiness. That's, that's, that's the only power you have because if you can't persuade somebody to agree with your deviant lifestyle, then we're going to have to force you to do that. That's, that's your only option. Sociologist's solution is twofold. Remove all religious influence and advance progressive ideas. Right? These two ideas are antithetical to one another. You can't have them both living in harmony with one another. Religious influence, progressive ideas. So, determinism. 
says that humans do not really have a free will. Anything we do is either determined by biological determinism or, or genetic makeup, right? Richard Dawkins said DNA neither cares nor knows. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. However you're wired in your DNA, that's just how you're going to act, think, and respond. And again, is there any responsibility in that? Is there any personal responsibility in that idea? Well, clearly there's not. Once you eliminate free will, then I'm not responsible for my actions, <clears throat> excuse me, what I think, what I do, because I'm just a higher, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm just a higher evolved animal, and I'm just responding to the circumstances around me. Or the sociological determinism, which says our actions are the result of social conditions such as gender, race, class. So which one of these things do you think is driving the narrative today? Social conditions. Yeah. Yeah, it's the social determinism for sure. Right? Because we only use the biologicals when it supports our, our agenda or drives our narrative. And then when it no longer does that, then you know, we don't use it. We kick that one to the curb. Uh, secular sociology says that humans are inherently good. And again, we see this time and time again in the worldviews, right? <clears throat> Excuse me, only in the biblical worldview do we see this idea of a sinful human nature. So it's only in the biblical worldview. Uh, humans are good. It's society that makes us bad. And we talked briefly about that. And then two bad institutions that are formed by humanity that restrict our freedom is government and religion. And so that's how they account for bad behavior. The government made me do it. Or this religious idea that you have is making me do it. I'm not responsible for that. Um, Again, it takes on this the society. Again, the idea is, and this is where you get it, right? Institutions are made up of people. Institutions are made up of people. And so initially the institutions are good because people are good and we make what's good. But at some point in time, the institution turns and becomes bad and then begins to corrupt the people. Does that make any sense? I mean, you know, it's just like, did I really just say what I just said? And I don't know that I could repeat it again, right? Because I, I don't have that written down. And so, it's that, again, it's that, it doesn't even make any sense. It's, it's not logical. It's not rational. Just look at the foundation. They got them to go liberal. Well, well, again, I mean, you, again, you go, it's, it's your ideas of your thinking keep moving back and forth. But it's, it's I'm not the problem. And if I'm not the problem, somebody or something has to be the problem. But it's clearly not me. It's clearly not me. Trine? She said, does it perpetuate hopelessness and victim mentality? Absolutely, it does. It does. Because where is any hope? That, okay, we're all going to get together because we're good, and then we're going to reformulate these institutions, which eventually go bad again? It's like, why put the effort into it? I'm trying to be happy. That's too much work to do those things. And it's seriously eroding my happiness. Again, it's all about the self. It's all about the self. Yeah, Jeff. How do they explain the 5,000 year lead? Yeah. 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 Let me hang on. Let me let me answer that question, because here's the thing is, is see, we have these questions because we're expecting them to think like us. I mean, literally, we do. The question is a valid question. The question is a valid question. But we're expecting these people that's only seeking their own happiness to think rationally, logically, biblically, and they're not going to do any of those things. And so, the, but that becomes the issue is, is they don't have to answer it. When you live in a postmodern world, a post postmodern world, you don't, I don't need logic. I don't need data. I just need my feelings. And there's nothing you're going to say that's going to affect my feelings. 
And so, that, again, we, if we're going to move the needle on these things, we can't expect the world to think like we think. What we, man, I, there used to be a whiteboard up here. Um, and, I, and I may share this, you know, just, just imagine a linear line before you're here in the air, right? And in the middle of the line is zero, right? And then everything over here, one, two, three, four, five, it goes out to my right, your left. Those are positive numbers. And then we go one, two, three, four, five over here to my left, your right. Those become negative numbers, right? And so me growing up in Hot Springs, Arkansas, you know, I didn't, I didn't know any Muslims. I didn't know any Mormons. I didn't know any Hindus. You know, everybody was Christian. Whether you live like it or not, everybody was Christian. And so zero on this line represents you're ready to hear the gospel. Doesn't mean you're going to receive it. It just means, means you're ready to hear this gospel. And you're open to it. And then everything to the right is your growth. Right? It becomes sanctification. But everything to the left is negative. And so I was probably just before zero. And most of us were at that point in time. You know, today, people are sitting here at negative five. They're not ready to hear the gospel. They're not even going to consider it. It's just a myth. Right? And so what we have to do is we're not going to move anybody from five to zero in one conversation. We're not going to do that. What we have to do is say, okay, let's talk about that. Literally, somebody just came up to me today and said, I just talked with somebody, and they said, Jesus is not a real person. Good. That's a good place to start. So, right, we just threw down the minimal facts, and we walked through this whole thing, and I said, now go have that conversation. I love when they say that because that's one of the easiest things to prove. Jesus was a real person. Jesus was really crucified. Even skeptics agree to that. And so he can go back and talk to that person, and he can move that person from a five to a four. And as we build relationships with these people, and we have these conversations, and we answer their questions, we can move them from a four to a three. And our goal is, is to move them from a four to a three to a two to a one to a zero that they're ready to hear the gospel. And then we share the gospel. Doesn't mean they're going to receive it, but at least maybe they'll consider it. Most of society is at a negative five. And we have to use that, move that needle. And that's what apologetics does. It's pre-evangelism. It begins to answer these tough questions and we move them from five to four to three to two to one to zero. And now we can share the gospel. Al. You don't. Yeah, and again, that's the only reason why anybody is saved is through that power of the Holy Spirit. But then again, the, from five to zero, that's a relationship. That's a relationship that you're building. And again, the reality of it is, is I could say, look, here's the truth. You deal with it. That's not love. You know, that's just me kind of washing my hands and saying, well, I did my part. Well, no, I didn't because I proceeded without love. We have to have love and we have to have truth. Right? And they have to come together. Right? Love is in the left hand. Truth is in the right hand. Well, we've got to deliver them both. Okay? So, yes. Uh, so, anyway, so that's that idea. But, again, we're, we're back. To, I, sorry, man. I, I, I guess I just went off on one of those things, and I didn't even tell you I was going off on one of those things. But I just did. Um, so we got to move that needle from five to, to zero so that they're ready to hear the gospel. Um, sociologists are very cr critical of the traditional or the biblical family. They're very critical of that. Lawrence Kessler says, marriage and family life 
have been largely responsible for today's prevailing neurotic climate with its pervasive insecurity, and it is precisely this climate that makes so difficult the acceptance of a different, healthier way of life. So this whole idea of a biblical family, a traditional family, that's what's causing all this neurosis in the world. All of this mental anguish and this emotional strife, it's the traditional family. That's what the world says. Now this is what's healthy. Right? These are some examples of a healthier way of life. That's healthy, according to Lawrence Kessler. Right? Homosexual marriage, transgenderism, LGBTQ lifestyle, open marriage, polygamy, polyamorous. This, and it goes on and on and on. The further away we get from God's purpose and design, the more destructive our society and culture becomes. As individuals, as institutions, as societies, the further away we get. And again, we want to be able to be in these relationships and we want to be able to to share these things with love and truth because the crazy thing is, is when you look at the statistics, right? You can go to cdc.gov and you can just and pull up reams of statistics. Man, the traditional family, one man, one woman, where you have the biological mother, biological father in home, children do best in those environments. The statistics are unending. The research is, you'll, get, you'll throw up, you'll look at so much of the research. So why do they believe this? Because that impinges upon my goal for happiness. I no longer care about the data I care about my happiness. How am I going to get that? Even though the happiness is the very, that they're pursuing, um, somebody was saying this, it's literally that pursuit of pleasure which destroys you. It's that pursuit of pleasure that destroys you. Right? It's that idea of hedonism. Unending pleasure. Uh, Marxism believes that humanity is both biologically and socially evolving towards communism. Sociological hindrances of Marxism are religion and the traditional family. We're two for two right now. Right? Religion distracts the workers from their class struggles. The traditional family is a stumbling block to communism because it hoards capital and wealth and distracts people from the purpose of the revolution. And we cannot have any distractions there. And then postmodernism, right? Well, they disagree with the meta narratives, right? That grand story that explains all things, that's what they reject, um, of secularism and Marxism and would be a, a biblical Christianity. Uh, they do agree with the social construct aspects of their sociology. And so hopefully we've noticed a consistent agreement with what the problems are, right? Religion, family. Oh, postmodern sociologists, while they disagree with them, oh, I already said that, post, they object to that. Okay, the biblical view of the family. Uh, Adam Phillips said, a heterosexist norm enables, that's one man, one woman, a heterosexist norm enables society to marginalize some sexual practices as against nature and thereby attempt to prove the naturalness of the heterosexual monogamy and family values upon which mainstream society bases itself. Traditional family, that's the problem. And they're trying to minimize all of these non-natural things because you're, you're raining on my happiness. You're infringing upon that. Man, postmodern sociology desires to push the sexual boundaries so far that people forget what used to be normal. They push the sexual boundaries so far that people forget what used to be normal. All right, I'm getting ready to go on a rabbit trail, so this is time for you to either check out or take notes or just enjoy the freak show, whatever, whatever you want to do. <laughs> However you want to call it, and I'm not even going to ask you. I'm going to leave that up to you.
Okay, Dylan Mulvaney. My, look, I, look I'm, I'm not asking you if you're a Bud Light drinker. That's not what I'm asking. Okay. That's right. I'm, I'm not asking any of that, okay? So I'm not, you know, I'm not looking to drag you into my web of deceit here or anything, right? And so you get this, and you're like, man, Bud Light brings this guy out, brings this guy out to sell their product, and within a span of, what, a week, they've lost billions of dollars. I mean, they've just lost all kinds of money. All kinds of money. And you're like, well, good. They got what they deserved. Maybe they'll learn their lesson. Look, they already won. They already won. Because while they didn't gain 10 yards, they did move it forward two yards. Right? Right? And then the next time somebody shows up like that, it won't be as shocking to us. And with each time, we become a little more desensitized to the idea. Right? And where is the whole transgender thing moving? Again, I was talking with Amanda and a few other people about this, just kind of running this idea. And that is... Who's the first transgender person that you remember? Famous person. Bruce Jenner, right? Who did, who did Freeman say? Ru- RuPaul. RuPaul. <laughs> RuPaul. I'm like, get away from me. Get away, right? So it was Bruce Jenner. Yeah, he wasn't even, yeah. Yeah, he was just making money. Yeah, he was just making money. So anyway, for me, it was Bruce Jenner. Right? And so Bruce Jenner, he didn't deny, even he didn't even deny his maleness. He's just like, I'm just more comfortable wearing women's clothes and looking like a woman. But here's the thing is, he looked, when he transitioned or whatever you want to call that, he looked and he acted like an adult female. Right? And that was the trend you saw for a while. That's just not the trend you see today. It's as a male, and I'm transitioning, right? I talked last week about the 56-year-old man who was married and had five or six kids, but he wanted to be a six-year-old little girl. And when you, when you look at his interviews, he's wearing six-year-old little girl stuff. Dylan Mulvaney is a man, but he dresses up like a teenage girl. And you're like, wow, where is all this heading to? And we're minimizing and we're lowering that age appropriation to all kinds of things. Back to that Project 16, right? Where you've got, yeah. In, in Montana, they're taking pedophilia out of uh, making it a protected class. I think that's Minnesota. Yeah, Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah, I was just reading that today. And so you see this diminishing and where they're working this idea of the age of consent, right? We've already got consent is the one thing that makes a sexual relation okay. Even if a one-night stand, it becomes consent. And so now we're just trying to lower that age of consent, right? And so now here comes a connecting point. Years ago, San Francisco, there's an organization called NAMBLA, which is the North American Man-Boy Love Association, it's a real thing. And their whole thing is, is, hey, look, we're not social and sexual deviants. We just have different preferences. North American Man-Boy Love Association. That's beyond social and sexual deviance. What is this moving to? You're sitting there seeing that there will not be right? Pedophilia is not pedophilia anymore, right? It's minor attracted people. The language begins to change, right? I'm not a social deviant. I just have different preferences. Indeed. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you've got all of these things that are taken. So we change the language, we change the words, we change the meaning. And so I'm just researching today, literally an hour or so ago, uh, minor attracted people. 
And there's literally three different levels of minor attracted people. The language, they're changing the language. Fortunately, pedophilia is something that most adults will not tolerate today. But hang on a second, Henry. But as we keep moving and we keep pushing that envelope, people become desensitized to it. And they don't need the church to come on board. They just need those 70% that think same-sex marriage is okay. They just need them to come on board. Right? The church is the problem. Henry? Well, you do. And, and the only thing that you have is, one, you have biblical truth, because truth is always going to win, and you have data. Biblical truth and data. What's that? It can be skewed, but trust me, there's, there's enough research out there that's going to support this. Oh, Absolutely. And so, but you've got that. And so, look, you must not have a, this is, this is just me speaking that. And again, I'm still on my rabbit trail and I'll get back to this eventually. Maybe remind me where I was. Um, you must not have a conversation with somebody about this without bringing in two ideas. What is reality and is it true? What is reality and is it true? Reality, truth is that which matches reality. And we must have conversations on those levels. Because if we're having a conversation on feelings, you're wasting your breath. Yeah. Definitely. And it is. And so, but we've got to control what we can control. We've got to control Trinae. Well, and again, because the issue is worldviews. And, and now we're back to why we're, we're, we're in this class. Because worldviews determine how you see and how you respond to things. And so ultimately the question becomes, which, hang on a second, which worldview is true? Because they can't all be true. Now, Christianity, if secularism is true, Christianity is false. It's false. If Christianity is true, everything else, every other idea is false. And so we need to be able to have those discussions, you know, because if we even talk about from a pragmatic point of view, right, Christianity is not pragmatism, but if I'm going to enter your discussion and I'm going to bring pragmatism in there, said, you know what, the best family for a child is one man, one woman. 
biological parents. That's the best situation. Now, we're not always in that situation, right? And that doesn't necessarily have to define you or your situation, but generally speaking, that's what it is. And again, so we start talking about those things. And you can call it arrogant all you want, but what does the data show? I may be a fascist, arrogant pig. That may be true. But what does the data say? Children do best in a one-man, one-woman home that affects everything. It affects everything. And again, once you start getting into single-parent homes, what the single parent is usually the woman. And from that, we see lower education outcomes. We see higher crime rate, higher incarceration rate. We see higher poverty. And it just, man, it's a cycle that continues on and on. Man, if you're in a single family home, single parent home, that doesn't mean that that's your future. It just means, man, it's going to take more work. And you, right, you need that. But the best situation is one man, one woman. You know what? That's what scripture says. That's what the biblical worldview says. And those are the conversations that we need to be able to have. You were And we all agree, but there you go talking logically, rationally, scientifically again. Absolutely. That's, yeah, that's the correspondence theory of reality. But again, we have to figure out how do we get them to that point. And that, that's the discussion. How do we get them to that point? Now, And, and you can, trust me, you can find that. They're few and far between. Because here's the, here's the, here's the deal. If, if Al and I are debating, and he's debating from a point of truth, and I'm debating from a point of error, what is the debate going to do? I mean, if the debate is done well, what is that debate going to reveal? It's going to debate, it's going to reveal my error. Well, you just rained all over my happiness. And so we don't have the debate. We just shut off all discussion because that's the only way a lie can persist is to shut off the discussion from the, in the first place. And again, I'm all about the love, but look, we just can't go in and say we got to love people because you got to define what love is, right? The love in the world is you affirm my, social, my sexually deviant lifestyle. That's love. You have to affirm me. Well, we, we can't do that. As Christians, we cannot extend that kind of love. We always extend biblical love with truth. And that becomes the conflict. And so what the conflict, you don't want to debate. Look, we, we speak truth. We, we, we extend biblical love as much as we can, and we move on. 
when we find those the people that want to have those discussions, we have those discussions, but we need to do so, in, like I said, in the manner that you do. Yeah. You see these fool politicians just screaming their heads off? I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. You're like, you're an idiot. You, you are making zero progress. We can't be like that. Scripture does not allow that for us. We can be like that. Let me back up. We can be like that. Scripture does not allow that. Um, all right. They're pushing the boundaries. Got it. If you believe there's such thing as a deviant sexual behavior, you're the one that's abnormal. You are the abnormal one. Again, they call good evil and evil good. Islam. Social institutions under the authority of Islam, it creates a united worldwide community. They call it Ummah, I think is how that's pronounced. Um, man, there is no distinction between social institutions and the state in Islam. It's all one and the same thing. The state runs it. While it claims unity within all social institutions, its reality is not so. There's no equality of sexes. There's no freedom of religion. So Christianity... Let's look at that. The foundation of Christian sociology is the family. Society functions best when it's organized around the traditional family and emanates from that family. And again, we're back to God's purpose and design, right? The institution of the family was established in Genesis 1 and 2 prior to the institutions of government and church. The second institution behind marriage, right? You have the institution of marriage, we find that in Genesis, and you have the institution of the family. The two main institutions that existed even before the church existed, and certainly before government existed. And so each time when you hear in a secular discussion of what religion's the problem and the family's the problem, man, that's not an attack on you. That's an attack on God's ordained institutions. So when we talk about same-sex marriage, that's an attack on God's ordained institution. That becomes the root. That becomes the core. That's the spearhead. Right? Don't take it personal, says the child emotional neglect guy. Right? Don't take it personal. Man, that's against God. That's against God. Problems in our society are the direct result of failing to follow God's design and purpose for the individual family. You can't get away from it. Cannot get away from it. Man, if you destroy the marriage, you'll destroy the family, which will destroy the church, which will destroy the culture, which will destroy the government. And so when we get this whole idea, man, and I'm getting ready to go off on another one, okay? Um, so when you get the whole idea of birth control with the pill, that changed everything. That was the game changer. Because now you separated sex, baby, and marriage. Right? You separated those. And then when you allowed, right, California, no-fault divorce, you've now separated the marriage. Divorce is not a big deal. Marriage is not a big deal. And as the family crumbles, so does everything else because we have destroyed what God has ordained as good and pure and holy. And that becomes that cycle and that thought process that takes place. Um, this is a little long, um, but I, I think it's worth listening to. Sphere sovereignty. Sphere sovereignty consists of three distinct spheres. Family, church, and state. Interestingly enough, those are the three institutions that God ordains. Family, church, and state. As image bearers of God, we reflect God's truth in each of these spheres. And when there's balance in these spheres, there's harmony, peace, and prosperity are possible. When each sphere is fulfilling the role that God has designed for it to fill, then you have this you have this welfare that goes on, this shalom that takes place when these three fears operate within their realm, okay? Um, but when one sphere gets too big, 
and importance or influence, then it begins to usurp the roles of the others. And again, you can go back to the Catholic Church and, you know, in the 1,000, 1,200, 1,500s, you know, and it usurped a role that it had no place taking. And it created all kinds of issues. Right? Or if you go into the communist states, the government takes a role that it's got no place usurping, and it creates issues. Right? Each sphere has its role under God's purpose and design. It's called sphere sovereignty. Um, Abraham Kuyper is a guy that kind of made this famous, and he's back in the 1800s. You can, you can look that up. Um, anyway, so this is kind of a picture of sphere sovereignty. And so we're going to be under an authority. It's either going to be the authority of Christ or the authority of the state. The authority of Christ is driven and led by love. The authority of the state, it's by power. Let's carry the stick and we will get conformity. Sphere sovereignty. So subsidiarity. It's the belief that decisions are best handled at societal level closest to the issue of persons or persons affected. It's local, it's not national. And again, I think Al was talking about her, no, uh, was talking about you know, being on the school board. Look, if you want to affect the education in your area, run for a school board position, become a teacher. There's things that at the local level that we can do better than the national government can do at the national level. Because on the local level, we're people. You're a human being. You're an image bearer that's sitting in front of me, that's standing in front of me. Man, we just don't make decisions based on numbers all the time like that. The government, you're just a number. You're just a number. So subsidiarity, right? Again, this is a Christian worldview idea. No other worldview has this idea. Man, we need to take care of it at the local level. Subsidiarity. Freedom. I'll try to hurry along. We're at 733. Uh, biblical freedom or free will is vastly different from the secular's view of freedom. Right? Again, we're back to personal autonomy and their secularism. Uh, this guy, Pitbull, he's a rapper out of Miami. I know you're, you're just surprised that I would even know something like that. I was going to play this video for you, but it just it wasn't appropriate. So I'm just, this is the main lyric, okay? You can, you can thank me later. It says, I'm free to do what I want and have a good time. Now somebody, anybody, everybody say, because I'm free to do what I want and have a good time. It's about my happiness. That's the ultimate goal. This ass pit bull, he'll tell you. Biblical freedom says we have the ability to choose that which is right. You see, even when we talk about freedom, we have to define our terms. Well, freedom is I get to do whatever I want. Pitbull said so. God says freedom is the ability to choose that which is right. And again, we see that in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve knew what was right. They could choose to do what was right. They chose not to do that. They exercised their free will. With biblical freedom comes responsibility and accountability. Right? And so you're starting to see some talk and about that within, within the culture, within, oh, you know what, we need to have accountability. You know, that's a biblical idea. Thank you very much. People need to be responsible for their actions. Thank you very much. That's another biblical idea. Right? Because when we need to try to bring order back, that's where we go. We go to ideas from the biblical worldview. Because that's the only place you can get it. That is the only place you can get it. Right? So the problem, the root of society's problem is sinfulness. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Each person is fallen and sinful. Each person is capable of repentance and redeemable. Every person has value and can contribute to the overall well-being of society. Hey, man, there is no better time to be a Christian than today. There's no better time. Because, man, it doesn't take much light. It doesn't take much truth to go out there and impact the world. It takes courage. 
It takes courage to go out there and do that. But man, the God that we serve, we got all the courage we need. Will we make ourselves available to that? It's exciting. Man, people are like, I wish I worked where you did. No, you don't. No, you don't. Trust me, you're in the greatest mission field out there. If you're working around lost people, that's the best place to be. Is it hard? Yes. But man, God has placed you in that position for this time, for his purpose. And that should make us excited. Because that's what he has each of us here for. And the solution is Jesus Christ. The solution is Jesus Christ. If you're not actively cultivating a biblical worldview, then you're passively absorbing a false one. And then just a couple advertisements. Man, if you've got time and if you, I mean, if you just thought, man, I, I would love to do a deep dive on this worldview stuff. I mean, if you're just like what I'm saying is just getting you, I would encourage you to look into this Colson fellow. I'm, I'm finishing this program up. Um, I've got some packets up here if you're interested. It's a 10-month program. Trust me, it is worth it. It's work, but it is worth it because it has literally sharpened how I think about things. It has sharpened how I think about things. I would encourage you to look into this. And then the other thing is this Unshaken Conference. It's in Nashville. It's November 4th. Man, Elisa Childers, she was just here. Natasha Crane, Frank Turner. These are some of the best people out there doing this right now. They're some of the best. Um, November 4th, it's, you can see it's an all-day conference. You've got the link on your thing. I think it's, are we still in the early bird thing or something? You might be able to get tickets for $49. It goes to $59 at some point in time. I know some of us are already going to this. Man. They also have a podcast. They do, they do have a 15-, 20-minute podcast. It's on Wednesdays. Uh, Lisa Childers and Natasha Crane, not Frank Turk. He's got his own. Yeah. Uh, and call it check out, I think. I believe you look at the podcast. Yeah. They, they kind of announce on either one of their platforms. Yeah. And so it's, it's great. It's good. I would encourage you to do this, man. If you've got young people, I would take them to this. I would take them to this. Uh, any questions, problems, concerns? Man, uh, Kevin. Is this going to be a hard question? Okay, thanks. Go ahead and ask it then. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, because, again, that's that line of despair is I'm below the line of despair. I just want everybody else to live according to my ideas. That makes me happy. But, again, you can't do that. Was Hitler right? Well, you can't say he was wrong if that's your, if that's your thinking. And so, again, what we have to end up showing is, is literally the conflict that takes place and where's the results of where that's going to lead to. And, again, some people aren't going to listen, then that's okay. Some people will, and if you can get them to think, that's a good thing. And that's what we want to do. But, yeah, I mean, they are smuggling in ideas. Again, Frank uh, Turk's got a book literally called that. You know, I think it's Stealing from God, from God. yeah. Um, so, again, there's lots of things. Again, I encourage you to get that tactics book. Um, it's a good one. We sell it in the bookstore. And... <laughs> 
All right, next week we are going to be talking about law. Uh, I think that that one will be a good one too. <laughs> Let me close us in prayer. Blessed Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you that, Lord, in a, in a crazy world, you are our constant. You are our foundation. You are our truth. You are our love. And um, we call you Abba Father. And Lord, you're not a distant being. You're not just a harsh God that desires to bring your wrath upon us. You want to hold us near to you. You want to whisper your love to us. You want to encourage us, Lord. You want us to walk in your path of righteousness, for this is good for us. And so, Lord, may we, may we seek your face this week. May we draw into your, into your presence, your holy of holies, as, as we praise you, as we read your word, Lord, as we um, seek to be filled with courage and truth. Uh, Lord, we want to be a city upon a hill. Uh, that you've created the church to be. May we fulfill each of our roles. Uh, guide us and direct us with your wisdom and counsel, and it's in your mighty name we ask these things. Amen.